planted into our hearts, but we believe that you are God and that you are bigger than the enemy and that whatever you want to speak to us will prevail. Lord, I pray against anything that would try and um, storm around our minds, that would try and distract us from the word that you have for us, whether we be here or on Facebook Live or, or somebody's listening a year from now, Lord. I pray that every single person would hear exactly what you want them to hear, that it would be rooted deep down inside of our hearts, and no matter what, that the enemy would not be able to steal or to take that from us, because you are bigger than that, Lord, because we know that with you we can do all things, Lord. So we come this morning and we believe and we expect for the good, good things that you have for us. So we ask these things in your name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Have you ever noticed, and this actually happens to me all the time, I love electronics. Like, I'm an electronics guy. Like, I've got an electric car. Uh, I've got lots of electronics in my house. My wife would probably be rolling her eyes because we have so many electronics in our house. But it seems like even if you're an electronic guy, whenever you need your electronics the most, they fail you. Like when you really need your computer and you're in crunch time to print an essay or, or a work report or a calendar or a midterm and the computer just freezes and you're like, why now of all times? Or when you need to make a cell phone call and it's like your boss or somebody who you're trying to get a job from or a boyfriend that you just met and you really want the conversation to go well and not have a lot of stress and you can't have any reception and you're like, seriously, and you're like, I'll eat, and you're like, I want to just throw your phone wherever you can. Um, one of the worst is when you have to go somewhere and you put the location into Google Maps and you start driving because Google Maps has now promised you that it knows where it's taking you. And you believe it with all of your heart. But then all of a sudden you realize about halfway through the trip, I am not going in the right direction whatsoever. Or the GPS loses signal. And you're like, why? Why now? You know, Google could send me anywhere and I would probably go there. <laughs> Uh, and to prove that it's not just me who feels like this, I actually read a couple of stories about people who have um, done some pretty crazy things because of what Google has told them to do. In 2012, there were four college students from Tokyo. Go ahead and throw up that first picture. Their, pro their phone promised that there was actually a road ahead, um, but the problem is that they end up um, in a bay in an ocean bay, I guess the pictures aren't coming up. So just a picture, a car in the bay, like covered with water. This is what happens. And they just thought, Google told me to go there. So they went. They actually ended up having to pay. They had a rental car. They were in Australia. They had to pay $1,500 for what was called an idiot clause in their contract, which is crazy. Uh, there's another lady who was in Seattle. And GPS, uh, it sent her down a boat ramp, and she just went down, uh, and unfortunately, she was in a Mercedes SUV, which, and I mean, the car was up to, like, the luggage racks. It, it was terrible. Um, there was another story, and it wasn't so much driving issues. It was a lady who decided she needed to walk somewhere, and so she walked, she was walking, and Google told her to go into oncoming traffic, or over, and there were six lanes on a freeway. And so this lady starts walking towards oncoming traffic on the freeway. 
And she ended up being clipped. And luckily, the person had slowed down and she got hurt. And she tried to sue Google. (laughs) And she didn't win. Thank the Lord. That would be awful. Last one was a bus driver who decided his phone said he could make it so he could make it. And um, he shaved off the top of his bus because um, the the bridge was too low that he decided to try and go under. Uh, The bus was 12 feet and the bridge was 9 feet. So it didn't work. He couldn't make it. So he got stuck. But all of these people, they're trying to get somewhere. They're trying to get to a destination just like you and I on, on any given day. We're trying to get to a destination. We're trying to make progress. And I think as a human, all of us, we have to make progress. Like one of the main human elements of contentment is a sense of progress in our life. And if you aren't making progress, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life relationship or if it's your marriage or if it's your job whatever it might be if you aren't making progress eventually you will end up with a sense of longing and then you will eventually give up if you don't have progress and i think the problem is a lot of times we misinterpret what progress is i think we think that progress is something but for some reason we don't feel like we have progress and the reason is because we misinterpret what progress is because a lot of times we think that progress is effort. If I try hard enough, then I'll get there. If I pull myself up by my bootstraps and and I just suck it up and just go as hard as I can, then I'm going to get there and effort is part of progress for sure because we want to do something, we want to go somewhere, we we have this need for progress and so we get so busy doing things that we don't even realize that we aren't going in the right direction. And so we, we get to a lot of places, but we never make progress because we haven't gotten to where we are supposed to go in the first place. And I don't know about you, but I felt that many times where I'm doing all these things and I'm tired and I'm trying and I'm pushing and I just feel worn out. And the reason is because I've done a lot of things with my hands, but I haven't made any progress because I don't know where I'm supposed to go. Other people will think that progress comes from passion and passion is great, but Passion by itself, it's not enough to get you to where you need to go. You can, you can sincerely want something in your life and believe in it with all of your heart. And you can still not get there because you don't know where you're supposed to go. Because uh, passion is not enough. Effort is not enough. The key to making progress is effort or passion, but it has to be linked with direction. You have to have direction in order for your effort to bring progress to your life. In Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, that's your effort, that's your passion. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will what? He will direct. So it's the effort and the direction. He will direct your path. He'll get you to where you're supposed to go. Here's an example. If we leave after church today... And we decide we want to go to my house to watch the Seahawks destroy the car or the Falcons, not Cardinals, the Falcons. If, if we want to go and watch the Seahawks win after service today, and everyone said amen, um, I live about 16 miles away from the church, but I live northwest. So if we leave the church at 90 miles an hour, we can get 16 miles very, very quickly. But if I do not know where I'm supposed to be going, and instead of going northwest, I go southeast, 
I will get to my desti- uh, a destination very quickly, but will I have made any progress? No, not at all, because progress is determined by your destination and your proximity to that destination. So it may, make only, may only take me 10 minutes to get 16 miles, but I'll realize when I get there that I'm not at my house. I'm at the Phoenix Zoo. <laughs> Yes, I drove hard. Yes, I worked really hard. But when I woke up, I was in the wrong place because progress is so much more than just effort. And so many times we burn ourselves out because we have tried so hard and we don't feel like we've made any progress. Like we haven't gotten any closer to the destination that we felt because we didn't know how to get there. And I don't know, maybe you are here this morning and you've pointed your effort in the wrong direction time and time again. And you've become tired. You've become restless. You've become frustrated, stressed out, burned out. And the reason is because you all this time just needed somebody or the word of God or a word from God to point you in the right direction. And this morning, as we look at Philippians, we look at some, a letter from Paul. And Paul, he gives a picture of what he sees as progress, as how he sees progress in his life. Because it's amazing looking at Paul's life. One of the greatest thinkers of all time, let alone Christians. But Paul, one of the greatest thinkers of all time. We see throughout the Bible, we see in Acts what he did. But then in the epistles, we see what he thought. And so looking at the book of Philippians, we see he wrote it, um, started the church around 50 AD and um, had gone to lots of different churches. Or he, he started these churches, traveled around. This was actually the first church they believed that he, he preached in in Europe. And so things are going good. He's traveling from place to place to place. But by the time that Philippians is written, there's been a turn of events. There's been a change in Paul's life. And he's now under house arrest and he could still preach. But people would have to come to him. So it wasn't too bad of a situation. But he's starting to realize, and and by the time Philippians is written, um, he's actually been moved to the prison guard. And this is the place where people would be held in an actual prison before they were to stand trial before Caesar. And as this is happening, rumors are swirling like crazy. Uh, People are thinking he's going to die, that he's already dead. Uh, Journalism just wasn't very good back then. Unlike now where everything you hear on the news is true, right? Right? (laughs) But they're fearful. They think, what is going on? And so Paul, he writes this letter because he wants these people all around the churches to hear directly from him. And so he he starts the letter in in Philippians 1 talking about this is what happens to me, but he doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't dwell on it because, and we know that because he doesn't really give any details. It's really interesting because he says, this is what happened to me. um, But instead of describing what happens next, that he's been uh, wrongfully accused, he's been persecuted for his faith, he's been mistreated, he's been... um, hurt or or beat up. He doesn't talk about any of that. He doesn't talk about any of the details. Instead, what he says is, this is what it means to me. It's not so much of what happened to me. It's this is what it means to me because Paul understands that he can describe what happens, but it's not going to change anything in his life. And instead of going and and, and looking at things that are not in his control, he he doesn't want to worry about the what in his life. Instead, he says, this is what I want to tell you about the why. 
the what happened. Yeah, that, that, that happened and I can't do anything about it. But what I can do something about is the why in my life. And this word scares me to death, the word why, because my kids use it all the time and it ruins my life, honestly, because they say, why, why, why? Anyone else ever hear that word? And you're like, no, don't say that word. Why? Why? Why do I have a curfew? Why do I have rules? Why do is there? Why is it, did you say this decision? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I have a bedtime? Why, why, why? And you're like, ah. and we have luckily this great parental privilege. And we all promised when we were kids that we would never use it. But now we cling to it with everything within us. And it starts with a because and it ends with a I said so because I said so. But kids, they'll use this. It's like the most important question in their lives. Why? 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 And of course, you know, we don't, we, we've grown out of that. We're mature now. We never ask God why, right? Oh. <laughs> but Paul's saying life is less about the what. And he's saying it's more about an interpretation of the what. Instead of giving you a description of my state, I'm going to give you an interpretation of my state, of what's happening to me. Let me tell you why this is happening to me. Because I can tell you all about the what, but nothing's going to change that. But I can tell you about the why, because I have control over the why. You know what faith is? Faith is an interpretation. It's an interpretation in your life. Paul's faith didn't affect the what. The what wasn't going to change. It affected the why. It didn't change what has happened to me, but it informed what it means to me. That's where Paul's at. He's in jail. He could die. And he's not so concerned with the what, but he's concerned with the why. You know, one of the best things about the Holy Spirit in my life is that he's my interpreter. And he can interpret my situations for me, that he can help me out in my situations that I'm going through, that instead of starting with a what, I can start with a why. Can I tell you that for someone in here, this could change your life because if you have a good enough why, then you can survive any what. Let me say that again. If you have a good enough why, you can survive any what. The reason that people quit when all hell breaks loose is because they don't know their why. Or they don't have a strong enough why. Or they haven't really bought in to the why in their life. And the great thing about us as Christians who read the Bible and come to church and hear the word of God is that why has already been built in. For Paul, why was already there. For you and I, why needs to already be there. And if it's not there, then the what will take over your life and will make you swirl and it will destroy you. But God wants you to know that there is a why built in. And the why that you are on this earth is to glorify him and to watch his goodness manifest in your life. That's your why. That's my why. But you have to decide that why before you encounter a what. Because if the what comes before the why, then the what will consume you. But if you already have a why, I'm saying what and why a whole lot right now. But I I want you to really get the point that you have to establish the why before you encounter the what. 
Because when you predetermine your why, there's nothing that can shake you. The enemy can throw anything at you. He can throw doubt. He can throw fear. He can attack you. He can do anything. If you know that your why is a deeper motivation, that you have a bigger purpose, that you have a larger context, that I am here on this earth to glorify the Lord, to share his grace and his love and his forgiveness and his hope with people, then that's my why. And if I can be founded on that why, there is nothing in the world that can defeat me because I know what my why is. I think for some of us, God, and uh, periodically, God needs to adjust our interpretation. He needs to adjust what, how we filter what has happened to us through the why instead of through the what or whatever else that we might be thinking. Uh, when Michelle and I first met, um, I had known about her for a while because people had told me about her, and I've sort of told some of those stories. Um, but she actually thought I was engaged. She, she thought I was engaged because I had an awesome roommate who had a crush on her. And when she went to my roommate asking about me, she asked about me. That always makes me feel good. <laughs> um, when she asked about me, my roommate's like, oh, well, he's engaged. I mean, what type of roommate is that? I thought that guy was my friend. Hey, he's a nice guy, but that wasn't cool. Um, but he told her I was engaged. And so for a while, she wouldn't give me the time of day. She wouldn't talk to me because I was engaged. And she's a godly woman. And I knew that. And that's why I was very attracted to her. Well, that and she's beautiful. But I'm sorry. This is really, okay. Um, but one day I got enough courage up to, to go and talk to her. And she looked at that as, wow, this guy's a jerk. <laughs> because he is talking to me. And he's engaged. Um, have you ever misinterpreted a situation? <laughs> have you ever come into a situation where somebody walked by you and they didn't say hi? And all of a sudden you think, wow, they must be mad. Or they're not very nice. Or they're a mean person. Or gosh, they're, they're jerks. I mean, what the heck? They didn't even say why to me. They just looked at me and scowled. Did you ever think maybe for a minute that they're going through something in their life? Maybe they didn't even see you. Maybe they didn't hear that you said hi first. Maybe they never even knew. I mean, I think we would get so much further in life if we would just stop drawing thought bubbles over people's heads. Right? And we need to adjust our interpretation sometimes. In relationships, we need an interpreter. Praise God we have one. And his name is the Holy Spirit. So when your spouse says that thing, you can have an interpretation from the Lord that says, hey, don't take offense to that because that's not what they meant. If you look at the context, it doesn't even make sense. And allow that to be your interpretation. If you have a friend and that friend says something and and you're looking at it a certain way, God in his interpretation can help you not to take offense from that situation. Facing conflict, we need an interpretation. Interpretation. You know how many times I've woken up on a Monday morning and a couple of things go wrong in my life and the first thing that comes into my mind is an interpretation of, well, I guess it's going to be one of those weeks. That's what comes into my mind. That's my interpretation 
on my own because I believe that because a couple of things went wrong in my life that now the whole entire universe is conspiring against me with the help of Lucifer himself. And so that's now what my week is going to be. But if we allow God to interpret for us, listen, it's not, you are not experiencing life. You are experiencing your interpretation of life. And so am I. And and your interpretation, if you allow God to interpret for you instead of your flesh or your fears or your insecurities to interpret for you, then you will see things in your life when God interprets it no longer as a setback, but now as a setup for your future. And set up for the why in your life, which is to proclaim who God is. It's more about a set up than it is about a set back. Paul in Philippians 1.12, this is what he says. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It's a set up. It's not a set back. All the people in Philippi, they're thinking, man, this is This is terrible. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. Listen, there weren't preachers just on every corner then. Like, if Paul dies, they can't get another guy. If I die, you guys go find another preacher in two seconds. But Paul, like, there's no one else. And so they're like, oh my gosh, this is a total setback for all Christianity. But what does Paul say? It's a set up. And he uses this word, um, advanced. It's the word uh, prokopo in um, the Greek. And it actually means, the way I learned and memorized this word in my Larry Powers uh, Greek class was prokotope, or prokopope, ropadope. And, and that's what I would think because it means to make headway in spite of severe blows. So it's like ropadope. So, so think that when, when you're on the ropes and the enemy or life or whatever it might be is just giving you body blows... You could still be making progress because you know that it's a setup and it's not a setback. That God, even though you're fighting an uphill, uphill battle, has anyone ever felt like you're fighting an uphill battle all day long? Even though you're beat up, even though things don't seem like they're going the right way, it might be that you are chained, but you are chained actually for a purpose and it is serving to advance the gospel. Because you could do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You know, sometimes you have to look at what's on you and realize that it is subject to what's in you and that God will use that through you to bring glory to his name so that you can fulfill your purpose in life. Yeah, you got chains on you, but God can use those and he will work through you even though things are hard, even though there's darkness in front of you, he will bring you through that to glorify his name so other people can see how good our God is. And this is so great because now you can think if things are hard, God must be in it. It's way too easy for us, and I've heard this lie from the enemy way too many times, that if it's hard, well, then I should bail out because God's not in it. If my marriage is hard, I might as well just bail out because God can't be in it if things are hard for me. If my job's too hard, if this relationship is too hard, if being a Christian is too hard, if coming to church is too hard, if if ministering and being part of the ministry is too hard for me, then I might as well just bail out because God's not in it. Can I tell you that Jesus, if he used that type of thinking, would have never gone to the cross. And you'll never find your destination either. If you just allow yourself to think, well, it's too hard, so God must not be in it. No, if it's hard, that means that God is in it, and he's going to show himself faithful through you. 
Don't allow that lie to come into your life. We need a faith interpretation. Philippians 1.18, he goes on, and this is what he says. I love this. He goes, but what does it matter? <laughs> you know, I need to have that be something that I say. It needs to be my catchphrase. What does it matter? Because this phrase, it will keep things from bugging you. And I allow small things to bug me all the time. What does it matter? Paul goes on, he says, what does it matter? The important thing that is in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. So in all things, because as long as God's plan goes forth, it doesn't really matter to me. As long as life serves that purpose of the why that God has instilled in me, listen, I'm fine. And you're fine, but you have to see it that way. You have to have a perspective that comes from God himself and not from your own interpretation of what you're going through. And then it's, well, what does it matter? Because I know that God's going to be glorified through it. It doesn't matter if this thing happened to me or this person stabbed me in the back. I know that through that, that God can be glorified if I trust in him and I allow him to continually be in my life. And I put him above all these things that are happening to me. It doesn't matter because he's going forth. That's what Paul's saying. And then in the middle of verse 18, really it should be two verses, but they combine it into one. Paul goes from this idea of interpreting what's happening to you, interpreting your life. He goes right from that into an anticipation of what God's going to do. He goes, this is what happened to me, but I don't really care about that because I have a solid foundation to this is what is going to happen next. Because I believe that God is still there. It says, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will. I will means in the future. I will continue to rejoice. Look at Paul's frame of mind. It goes from interpretation of what has happened to an anticipation of what is going to happen. He's saying, I spent enough time on what has happened. I need to, I can't change that. I can't control that. I've acknowledged that. I've interpreted it. And now I'm moving forward. And I want to talk about what will happen next. Because I know my God is faithful. And so I, I want to read what he says in uh, Philippians 1, 18 through 27. And every time I say the word will, I want you to say it with me, okay? And I'm going to count how many times in 10 verses that he says the word will, which is an anticipation of what's going to happen in Paul's future. Knowing that he could die, that he could have his head chopped off, that he could be lit on fire for the palace um, lighting in their, in their parks or in their gardens, okay? So that's Paul's situation, but he anticipates what God's going to do, okay? So it starts out, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will... Good job. In no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will... Oh, man, I'm going to get some shoulder workout in here. Um, This will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? 
I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, but it is also necessary for me to remain in the body. Um, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for the progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Ten times. Ten times in ten verses. He doesn't say might. He doesn't say maybe. He says, I will. Because I know. Because I know my God. Because I know what he, that he is faithful in my life. And, and look at verse 20. He uses these words. And it's, these are, words are so phenomenal. In, in the English, it says, eager anticipation and hope. It says, I eagerly expect. And it's crazy here because Paul, most of the theologians, he, they believe that he actually made up this word. This word, eagerly anticipate, um, to expect, eagerly expect. And what he does is he takes like three words and he just crunches them into one really awesome made-up word. And, And it sort of describes this type of hope because he's saying there's no words to describe how confident I am in God. And that he will show himself faithful. There's not a single word. So I've got to make up my own word. You know, sometimes when God's doing something in your life and you don't think there are any words, you got to make up a word to describe partially of what God is doing for you. And so Paul, that's what he does. He says, there's no word, so I'm going to make up a word. And he uses this word, um, and it's actually three words crunched into one. And go ahead and put that word up, and I'm going to count to three, and I want you all to say it, uh, because when I first said this in Greek class, I totally failed at it. So one, two, three. Good job. Give yourselves a hand. That's awesome. You guys are now Greek scholars. It's Apokaradokian. And so it's three words made into one word. And the first word there is apo, and it means to turn away with concentration, ignoring other interests. So Paul's situation right now, this is what's happening to him. He's saying, to my left when I look, there's a prison wall. To my right when I look, there's another prison wall. When I look up, there's a prison cell. And when I look down, I see chains. And what Paul is saying is that I have to turn my head with concentration, not to focus on what's happening in the physical, but to believe what God's going to do in the spiritual. It's ignoring what I could focus on and embracing what I should focus on. The enemy is going to try and get you to focus on the garbage in your life. But Paul starts out with this phenomenal word and said, I will not focus on that. I will forcefully and intentionally focus my mind on something else. And then he uses the word kara, which is the word head. Very simple, straight through, straightforward. And then he was, uses the word dokian, 
which means to stretch forward. So literally what Paul is saying is this is a picture of me taking my head willfully and stretching it forward to see God's future for me. I don't care that I'm in prison. I don't care that Caesar could take my life. It doesn't matter because I know God's going to be faithful in my life. And I think for every single one of us, we need an apocardokian in our lives. Now, it would be a little bit weird, but when you're at work and your boss is really mad at me, just go, apocardokian. <laughs> your husband's yelling at me, apocardokian. I will willfully, it doesn't matter, you get a, a speeding ticket or, or your tabs are expired, your cops comes up to you, apple, apple car, okay. and I will, whatever it might be, I think sometimes we just, because what it is, is, is I'm not going to look like a normal person. I'm going to look with great expectations of what God is going to do in my life. It's like when my kids, we take them to Disneyland like we did a couple of weeks ago. And they want to stick their heads out the window because they don't want to wait. They just want to see Disneyland because they know something good is coming. And they're not thinking about cars whizzing by. They're not thinking about if they could fall out and die on the freeway. They just want to stick their head out the window because they know something good's going to happen. In life, we've got to stick our heads out the window because we've got something better than Disneyland. We've got heaven. And God not only wants us to have heaven someday, but he wants you to have heaven on earth right now. Paul could very well die, yet he is so excited. So excited he has to make up his own word. I pray that we can get to the place where we're so excited and we say, there isn't even a word. I've got to make up my own word. I don't even know what my word would be, but I've got to make it up. Now, I want us to just do something really funny. Um, just humor me. Um, go ahead and stand with me because we're going to pray after this. Um, I want to symbolically pull an apocardokian. So I want everybody to look to your left. Your other left. No, just kidding. I'm going to look to your left. And I want you to think about your life. And I want you to think about those things that have consumed you. The what's in your life that have tried to take over. And I want you to pull an apocardokian. I want you to establish your why right now in your mind. That God is going to be bigger than your what. And I want everyone on the count of three to look to your right. One, two, three. Apocardokian. Now, I want you to do that this week. When things hit you like they've never hit you before, you have a why that you can establish right now. You have a why that God has told you about. And don't allow your what to consume you because you have a why that's far stronger. Let's pray.